0: Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt.
0: We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships.
1: If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. So, Matt, what's our listener question this week?
0: Hi, Sherry. Listener question for this week. Let's just jump right in and I'll read it. I often hear Matt asking if people in early sobriety are in a recovery program. The idea is that a recovery program, not any specific one, is helpful. However, I believe that Matt himself did not and does not belong to any program to help with recovery. Why do you recommend a program when you did not participate in one yourself? Mm. It's a great question. Do you want to take the first stab or do you want me to?
1: Well, I'm going to say, because I wasn't in one. I mean, I did personal therapy for a little bit, but I did not. And I think we're trying to help people learn from our mistakes. And now I feel like, (laughs) you know, so maybe that's the answer is that's why we asked, (laughs) because we want you to learn from our mistakes because we weren't in it. And it was several years into your sobriety that I finally got help for myself. And then that's what kind of transpired. I think, you know, the echoes recovery and you, I feel like even though you're the facilitator of Shout Sobriety, that was important to you when you started that in the summer of 2019. So that became your community and your recovery group. That's how I would answer the question. And that's how I look at it because we learn so much from our groups. I feel like even though we're maybe the facilitators and the orchestrators, it's still such a learning process and it is such a community for us, even though it wasn't right after you know you started seeking sobriety.
0: Yeah, I, I could not agree more with that. I mean, everything you said, the first part, the reason we ask people when we're first starting to get to know them or we're starting to get to know their spouse hey is the drinker who is newly sober in a recovery program is because it it tells us a lot about mindset uh, often people quit and they are just white knuckling it they are what is often referred to in the recovery community as a dry drunk they are quitting because they're getting nagged a lot from their spouse and they really don't want to quit. They want to find a way to moderate. They want to find a way to keep all the things in their life, their family, their wife and their job, and also their ability to drink. They just want to learn how to do it better. And so whether or not they're actually participating in a recovery program and what that recovery program is, is really, I mean, cause there's a big difference between doing a 90 day inpatient and going to an AA meeting once a month. So I think that there's a very practical aspect to that question, but, but yeah, not repeat our mistakes. I mean, I can't believe anyone ever listens to us. (laughs) I recover. I I relapsed for 10 years. So doing it the way I did it is not necessarily an indicator of success at all. Uh, So, but, but that being said, you're right. All of the groups that we are now facilitating Shout Sobriety, Echoes of Recovery, and Marriage Evolution, those are my people. So when we ask about a recovery program, regardless of what the program is, they almost always have two components. There is a curriculum, and then there's a community piece. So in the 12 steps in AA, the curriculum is the 12 steps, right? And in Shout Sobriety, we have a kind of a six-component curriculum. And most recovery programs have something around that but the community piece is what I, in my humble opinion, that's the really important part. And that's the piece that I'm trying to understand when I ask if somebody has a recovery program, do they have people to talk to? A therapist is great. A therapist is really, really helps people uh, deal with their underlying issues and the trauma from their past. But do they have people that get it, that they are in communication with? And so that's what I get from shout sobriety for sure. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time working the shout sobriety curriculum since I wrote the shout sobriety curriculum, but I, I definitely spend a ton of time and get a ton out of the community and the people. So I don't know. I think, uh, you know, keeping in mind and as an answer to this listener question that I relapsed for 10 years, doing it my way is not necessarily the best, the way I did it, the way I, you know, talk about it now. I think there is a lot of value in. At the end, the time that I made it over the hump, I did bibliotherapy, which some people scoff at that. I've had AA people say, "Oh, you read books." Well, I'll save a seat for you at the AA meeting for when you relapse. Which I think that arrogance and that um, crassness and lack of open mindedness is one of the big problems in the recovery community. It's kind of our way or the highway. But it was it really worked for me. I. I read, uh, I read some clinical stuff, right? I read about brain chemistry and nutrition and what actually happened to create this addiction inside of me. But even more importantly, I read a bunch of memoirs and some of them, I mean, Caroline Knapp's drinking a love story. I've, I've read that a dozen times easy. And Sarah Heppel's blackout. I've probably read that a half a dozen times. Those are my two faves. But there's tons of them out there, and I really felt connected to those people. Uh, Caroline Knapp is deceased, sadly, um, but I've actually been in contact very, very sparsely with Sarah Heppala. She's a little out of my league. Um, but so not only did I read her book, but she is interact-withable on social media and, and things like that. And so that was my initial connection, but now my connection is absolutely from shout and marriage evolution and echoes of recovery. So, yeah, uh, it does seem kind of weird that I'm always asking about a recovery program considering how I found recovery, but Hey, we got there one way or the other. And and I certainly do recommend at least for the community component. I mean, if you find an AA group that you love and you love the people and you don't want to work the steps, I mean, that's completely up to you. But I think the value in the community is really top top drawer, in my opinion, as far as something that's ne- necessary to keep us going down the right path. So that leads right into our topic, Sherry. Do you know what our topic is for today?
1: Hmm. Well, I'm assuming it has something to do with community.
0: Yeah, in a roundabout way it does. The oh, okay. official title, I should say to our listeners, too. We are recording this remotely using Zoom. It's the first time, I think, right? Is this the first time you and I've ever done one when it's just you and me like this?
1: I don't remember.
0: Yeah, I think it is. We, we interview our guests via Zoom, but Sherry and I are not in the same state. She's visiting her mother, and I'm still here in Colorado. So at least this episode, and probably maybe for a couple, we're going to have to do it this way and it's a little awkward. I like it when you're sitting right across from me and we can like talk at the same time and not worry about having that weird, you know, where it cuts out when it goes from one person to another over the internet. How do you feel?
1: Yeah, it's a little, it's a little awkward. That's, that's why I wanted to see your face and do it by zoom instead of just recording, you know, via phone, but no, it seems a little awkward.
0: Well, that's, that's I, uh, I showered and shaved this morning because you said you wanted to see my face. So there you go. <laughs> it's nice to see your face too. Okay. I, I scooped cat litter for you this morning. So seeing your Thank face you. is much more pleasant than what I was doing before this call. Yeah. So, yeah. so the title for this one is Why Sherry and Matt Are Not Psychologists or Therapists? And ha ha ha, the obvious answer is because we didn't go to school for psychology and therapy but there's much, something much deeper behind that, um, the, the why, is, because we say that, right? Every time we meet somebody, whether we're bringing them into our groups or if somebody asks us for advice, we're quick to say, listen, I'm not a psychologist or a therapist. I, this is officially categorized. What we do in our, in our groups is officially categorized as peer support, just like AA is and Al-Anon is. And- You know there there are reasons why we are not pursuing a psychology degree or the credentials of therapy and those reasons have changed over time at least for me and i'm really curious to hear what your thoughts are on this as well at the beginning when we first started these programs i mean i started out as a writer i mean i wanted to write and i still do write i write every week and we publish our blog and I write in preparation for these podcast episodes. I know it doesn't seem like that. It seems pretty off the cuff, but, and uh, unprepared. You're right.
1: But, You're right. You just don't fact check.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to reach people that way. And that, that worked to, to, a, to an extent, but as I started connecting with people and communicating with people, the need for a group to keep the connection going and to kind of not super formalize it, but to formalize it a little bit, seemed to make a lot of sense. And so we formed shout sobriety. And that was when I first suffered what I have suffered a lot, which is imposter syndrome. And that's when I started leading all conversations with, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. I don't want to be accused of being something I'm not. And then something really interesting happened therapists and psychologists started joining Shout Sobriety, and I was terrified. I still remember where I was in our house the first time I had a phone conversation, you know, more or less an intake conversation with the first therapist that wanted to join Shout Sobriety. I mean, I was sweating bullets. I was so nervous. I thought for sure that it was just a setup, and that she actually didn't want to join the program. She wanted to just lecture me about how irresponsible I was being to try to offer help without education and credentials. And the absolute opposite of that is what happened. She was, you know, she said, I know the book learning. I, I teach the book learning. I work with people on that. I want to know what happened with you. And I want to know what happened with other people in your group. I want to experience how humans interact with these experiences that I've read about and that I've studied. And I don't want to be the teacher. I want to be the student. I don't want to be interacting in a way where I'm giving advice. I want to be hearing real life examples of what helped others, and then try to implement those in my life. And I've heard that that same kind of explanation so many times. In fact, we have people in our groups now who have told us, "I am a therapist. That's what I do for a profession." If you would please. Make sure nobody in your group finds out that that's what I do. I would appreciate it. I want this to be for me. I don't want people asking me questions from a professional standpoint. I just want to interact with humans, and I don't want anyone to know I'm a therapist. And I find that to be just absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. I know Sherry. When it comes to echoes of recovery, I kind of dragged you into this and said, "Hey, this is a great thing. It's going to work." And you were skeptical. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah. And. and So I'm wondering, did you suffer any imposter syndrome since you didn't want to be there to begin with?
1: I was suffering it before we even launched the program. Don't I mean, I remember like freaking out on the porch when we were talking one day before we had kind of launched it. And uh, I was like, I don't know why you think that people give a shit and want to hear and how we can help. And I know I was dragging you down with me, but, you know, and probably beating you up making you feel bad for having some sort of confidence or in my mind, arrogance or know it allism I don't even know if that's a character flaw, but that's the best I could come up with. So I had a lot of that and I still do have a lot of that often. Um, like when people are like, well, you know, what do you think about this? And then I have to remember, I just have to say like, my own experience, this is what happened. And you know, remind them, hey, I struggled in, for a long time as well. So, yeah.
0: and, and and I think some of that imposter syndrome or that, why do you think anyone gives a shit what we think? I think that's perpetuated through our family even still today. Because I think you told me that you overheard your mom telling someone, oh, Sherry's in there on one of her little calls um kind of downplaying the significance or now watch or, out
1: i am teaching my mother how to use podcasts so watch out what we say oh that
0: <laughs> okay well maybe she'll maybe she'll hear me take that shot um but but i think you know i think it's valid and i think it's worth the, the reason i want to i spent some time on this i mean this isn't just you and i having a little therapy session internally where we get off our chest our imposter syndrome to the uh you know boredom of our listeners maybe it's boring but i think it applies because when people do participate in our groups they are both the student and the teacher uh that's the beauty of this process where it's about examples and real life stuff and how did you handle it when you went through this and what would you do if you were faced with this situation and people that have uh, life experience, lived experience, as opposed to teaching, learned experience um, through uh, an educational setting, it's those people kind of face the same thing to some degree, the imposter syndrome, right? They're not the the facilitators on the call, but I know we have people that sit on our video calls and they think I'd really like to tell this person this, but I don't know enough, or I haven't been doing this long enough, or I'm... You know, why would they want to hear from me? You know, and, and part of it is there is a built-in shame to everything that we do, Sherry. If you are on a video call for recovery from alcoholism, whether you're the drinker or the spouse of the drinker, you have been through something that is tinged in shame. And so if you feel bad about your experience, sharing that in some kind of a helpful way takes some guts and there is that degree of imposter syndrome to work through even if you're even if you're a listener for an hour and you're only going to chime in for a grand total of you know 90 seconds for the whole hour call having the the guts the grit to chime in for that 90 seconds it's not it's not easy when your feedback is from a place of I'm on this call because I've had this terrible thing that's happened and I don't feel confident and good and, and um, like I'm in a position to offer advice. And I think the advice word is really important. I think it's rare that we find people that we work with offering advice. It happens for sure, but mostly people offer, this is what I went through, take it or leave it. And that's one of the reasons as, um, I kind of transition to the, the, you know, so, so the, the original reason that you and I aren't psychologists or therapists are because we started this thing. Um, and we just wanted to get it going. We wanted to see if it would have legs. It clearly does, but we still haven't gone and gotten a psychology degree or therapy degree. And I mean, the truth is it's not because we're afraid of school or we're afraid to take the time. I'm in a master's degree program right now. It's just not in psychology and it's not in addiction recovery. So it's not that we're afraid of you know uh uh graduate level work. It's it's something else and kind of the next reason that you and I aren't therapists or psychologists is um we we don't really want uh, the, the clinical setting that doesn't suit either of us where you have, like, I love group work. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't know why I couldn't just use those words. I like to be in a group of people and everyone's sharing as opposed to, uh, sitting down with one-on-one, uh, with a client, like is the typical setting for clinical psychology or clinical therapy. Um, I just, and it's, it's a curiosity thing. I think of myself and I, I tell other people, I'm a lifelong learner, man. I got more questions than I got answers. And so if I'm one-on-one with somebody, I'm not going to learn quite as much as if I'm in a whole group and I get to watch the dynamic unfold and I get to watch one person react to what someone else is saying. And I get to watch the nodding heads, you know, (laughs) that's the best part of zoom, right? I mean, somebody says something and you see one or two people nod. And then somebody says something else and you see 30 people nod and you're like, okay, that's a universalism. Everyone's nodding their head. Do well, you, I, go ahead.
1: I was just gonna say, I wanna interject. Like when we have groups, sometimes we can meet in person. Like if we've hosted our retreat. And I, lo- I think that people really get a really good sense of value when they can rally around and help someone else. Um, And helping others makes us feel good about ourselves a lot of the times. Um, So I think for me, part of that, um, you know, the no advice giving, but to say this was what happened in my experience, like it gives you that feeling of comfort and support. But also, as you say that, you know that you're helping someone else. Maybe that hasn't been a situation yet. And maybe that's something that will be in the fore, you know, down the road for this person um in their relationship and so then you know they have just heard that and they know that that could be a potential and it could be coming and if it happens and they know how to kind of prepare for that but i really like the group aspect um simply because i think we get so much more out of being in community like this and helping not feel alone and having a sense of belonging is what makes that important to me.
0: Yeah. They, I mean, we say it and I think it's cliche at this point and, you know, I'm sure some people brush it off, but when we talk about our shout family, or our echoes family, that's re- really legitimately how it feels. I mean, I definitely feel like we can be more open and honest sometimes with some things, certainly with our echoes and shout family than we can be with our own real flesh and blood family. And I know that that's not uncommon.
1: Well, for sure. And then I think like when you are in a group setting, I mean, it might seem, I'm gonna use another one of your favorite words, counterintuitive, but I think it makes us feel more okay to be vulnerable when we see someone else being vulnerable and we can share something. Whereas maybe in a a one-on-one facility with your paid, you know, expensively paid therapist, not saying they don't deserve that money, but just, you know, that's an expensive session, but I think you withhold a lot. I think a lot of the times the therapist and psychologist can tell when somebody's withholding, but I think it's so, it's so uncomfortable too, because you're not getting that feeling of support and you don't feel like you have those other people lifting you up and, and, and urging you to really be vulnerable sometimes. I know that's how I felt a little bit with my therapist, even though it was a Zoom calls, um, but he could always tell when I was withholding. You know, and he would like prod me to go a little deeper and ask me like, why are you not going deeper? Where, what's, what's your fear? What's holding you back? You know, and sometimes they're, you know, they're just human or maybe, maybe someone's a really, you know, the therapist can't ask those questions because they don't recognize they're holding back. So I think it just kind of gives more courage. And even though it's in a bigger group with more people, I think it just gives more courage because they're seeing how vulnerable other people
0: are. That, that's exactly what I was going to say. You and I can tell when somebody's holding back as well, but rather than prod them and say, why are you holding back? I can tell you're holding back, which we have never said and never will. We rely on the vulnerability of others and ourselves to encourage that person to go deeper because they see that other people are and that they're getting benefit from it. And so those are just two different philosophies but I, that's, you're right. That's what I love about the group work. I love it when somebody just pours it out, right. And goes deep and it's the first time they've done it. And we've known them for six months and they've always been surface level. And then bam, they finally go there. I mean, I like want to high five and jump around and give big hugs. I mean, I get so excited when that happens. So that, I think that's a great example of what's cool about being a part of a group, whether it's our groups or another group. Um, the, the group work, whether you're the facilitator or a participant, you are, you are getting a lot out of it, not only because of what you're saying, but because of what you're hearing other people say. And when, when people go there, it's a celebration.
1: Yeah. And I, and I know that therapists and counselors and psychologists are all trained to ask the right questions to get that drawn Mm -hmm. out of people. You know, most of the time I think it works. We don't really have those skill sets. So us just being vulnerable and open ourselves allows that, you know, to open up every once in a while we'll ask a question because it's just someone will ask a question in the group just because it's based out of curiosity. And then we'll find through our Either you know, personal text or on the fa- private Facebook groups or something. Somebody be like, "Wow, someone asked me a question, and I really pondered that afterwards. And this is the steps that I'm taking because I never really thought about it that way. So it's just that back and forth too. I think that's kind of an amazing say, you know, thing to like witness. Like, wow, I, I don't know why I never was able to say this to them, but what was holding me back? And there's nothing holding me back. So now I'm going to do it. I'm going to be truthful, you know, like those sort yeah. of things.
0: Yeah, you, you, that's great. You, You brought up money earlier. And that is another one of the reasons that has existed for quite a while, for me anyway, that I didn't want to be a psychologist or a therapist, because I know a good number of psychologists and therapists. And with the traditional therapy model, they have to charge a lot of money and i am not begrudging anyone be able to make a living i am a capitalist i don't see anything wrong with the the way therapists or psychologists manage their business so please don't misunderstand what i'm saying but that's a part of it you've got to charge a lot and you're constantly chasing new clients or trying to make sure you hold on to existing customers clients because you've got to pay the rent on the you know the office that you have where you host your clients and you've got all the other expenses of life, which I won't obviously go into because that's a waste of everyone's time. But so we all complain, everyone complains, God, therapy is so expensive, but it's because of the model and the way it's set up. It's not that one therapist fall, that one therapist isn't trying to get rich. I mean, I'm sure there's some that are, but for the most part, the therapists I know lead a normal middle-class life and they're just They're trying to feed their family. And I I don't want a component of what you and I do to be chasing down new clients. And I mean, we advertise our book, right? And we do promotional stuff for the podcast. But I don't want to spend the amount of time and effort and worry and stress about attracting clients, collecting money from clients, and keeping clients. That just does not interest me when you talk about clinical psychology.
1: I thought you were going to say it was the bureaucracy of the insurance companies and having to deal with that. That's a whole.
0: I can't believe I didn't even mention that.
1: I know. I mean, you're, you're, you're a capitalist, but you're, you know, kind of like, let me do my own thing kind of guy. Um, Yeah. I think that, and then, you know, and just the influx of people that are interested right now, since 2020, everybody has kind of opened up with their mental health and then having that that feeling of having to turn people away because you just don't have enough hours in your week to see more clients. I think that would be really hard as that could be an emotional stress and toll on someone who is doing this as their career. Not that you and I aren't doing this as as our career, but it's a part of our career. And we have this peer group, so we don't have to turn people away necessarily. So it's just, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it started out, Uh, We jumped right in, had a ton of imposter syndrome, and that's how I felt as it relates to being a psychologist or a therapist. And then for a long time, once I learned what life is actually like for a clinical psychologist or therapist, I realized, ooh, there's parts of that I have no interest in. And I know you felt the same way, Sherry. So we didn't pursue for those reasons. But now it's changed for me a little bit. I, I have another perspective on why I don't want to be a therapist or a psychologist. And again, Trying really hard not to poo-poo those careers. That is a an important career. We are we have a massive shortage of mental health professionals. I encourage people to go into that field. We need 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 more people doing that, and we need uh, people who are in recovery to have that one-on-one outlet in addition to the group work. So I'm not anti-psychologist or therapist. It's just not a good fit for me. And the what what has really just solidified it. Like there's no going back for me now is I've come to realize I don't want the pressure of giving answers. We talked about how in our support groups, people give examples of how they did things. And I do the same thing. This is what worked for me. That's way different than this is what you should do. And there are, I think a couple of different reasons why people feel a ton of pressure, why therapists and psychologists feel a ton of pressure to give people answers to their problems. The first one is self-inflicted. You know, if you are a therapist or psychologist, you're thinking, I charge a lot of money for this session. I spent a lot of money on school. I do continuing education. I've got all of these resources at my fingertips. I better be able to solve this person's problems. And you know, when you are in that field as a professional, I mean, what, what job does anyone have where they don't feel pressure to excel at their job? Everyone feels that, right? But if your job is giving advice, that's a lot of pressure on you to solve other, other people's problems. And I know that there are therapists that have been doing this for a long time and have found ways to compartmentalize that and, and to not, you know, carry around a heavy burden for other people's problems and understand that humans are, you know we are interesting creatures and even the best advice isn't necessarily going to work if it's not implemented and so i get all of that but there is still pressure to solve other people's problems
1: and well, i'm and curious think,
0: sherry do you feel any self-inflicted pressure to solve other people's problems
1: not in this setting i think i would because i think like i i look at like therapists as a tool to help and give adv- give tools to have people solve their own problems come to conclusions about the things that has triggered the current events in their life. You know, those sort of things. Um, I'm sure there is a lot of like guilt that would get carried home. You know, if things are going off the rail for this person that you've been working with, I wouldn't want that pressure. Um, also, I mean, I'm a special kind of nice, right? Like <laughs> you were somebody that I struggled to connect with as a patient That. You know, I'm sure that therapists can break up with patients, but then I would also be like, do you not see how easy and clear this answer is? You know, as I've been spoon feeding you advice and questioning you to try to get around it, I would probably just, I'd probably have to just pull a mom move and be like, nope, that's it. You're grounded until you get this done. You know, I don't have that temperament. So that's why I don't think I could be a really good therapist or counselor or psychologist or anything because i just have to pull the mom move and be like, you'd have no. to
0: spend all your time attracting new customers because you would spend a lot of time firing customers <laughs> and that would be that would be a tough role well that's yeah you know, that,
1: that's why i think like just knowing as you were working on trying to find sobriety i'm not um, a very i don't know soft place to land. Like when you struggled, I'd be like, well, you know, you've kind of burned your bridges here, buddy. You got to yourself, you know? So I worry that that part of my personality would, would come out way too often.
0: Yeah. That's
1: why it's a special kind of person that can do this
0: job. Oh, it is. It is, you know, and I think, so we talked about the self-inflicted pressure, but there's also client inflicted pressure we, we work with people in our groups all the time that are transitioning from one therapist to another, because, you know, they, and and I don't blame them as the consumer. They're thinking I pay a lot of money for this and I want solutions and I'm not getting the solutions I'm looking for. So I must not be a good fit with this therapist. I'm going to go find a different one. The model itself sets you up for that kind of mentality. I'm not blaming anybody for, listen, if I was paying a lot of money, you know, to get my car washed and every time I got my car washed, it came back dirty. I'd find a different car wash, right? So I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with either the therapist or the clients who think to themselves, I'm paying a lot of money for this. I want results, but it, it puts pressure, right? If you're the, if you are the mental health professional and the person you're working with is expecting solutions, and you're struggling to deliver, maybe because they're just not listening to what you're saying, maybe because it's not your area of expertise, I, you know, for a variety of reasons, that would be a ton of pressure. And that's not something I have any interest in whatsoever. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. That would be that consumer mindset. Yeah. Like said, that The patient isn't is it open to some of the suggestions or maybe you, you said it's just not their area of expertise. And, but the, yeah, that, that expectation of, of, okay, I've come into your office. It's you're going to fix everything that I need you to fix. I mean, it's the same way with like, I feel like it's very similar to surgery and medicine. They want patients want all of their problems to go away once they start taking this pill. Yeah. One size fits all, this is going to be the miracle drug. This is going to be my miracle doctor. This person is going to fix all of my issues when it could be a multitude of issues. And then trying to explain that to someone who's probably struggling and it was just hard for them to find somebody to come into and be open to communicating with another um, human about the stuff that's going on. And then, you know, feeling defeated and moving on to another therapist or adding more to their mental health care program It would be hard
0: yeah absolutely i think the best kinds of therapists and a lot of the people that we have gotten to know that are in this line of work are this kind of person the best therapists are the ones that refer away people who are looking for help in an area that's not their exact specialization i think i think it's interesting there there is someone that I often connect people to, because I think so much of her and she's always really cautious, like, Oh, okay. Tell me their story again, because if this doesn't really fit my specialization, I'm not interested. And at first I thought she wasn't interested because she was so overwhelmed with client load that she couldn't take on, you know, very many more clients, but I've come to realize The reason that she's so specific is because if it's not her area of expertise, she doesn't want, you know, this is serious, serious business and she doesn't want to mess people up. And I think one of the most disheartening things that you and I encounter is people that, you know, the most traumatic experience in their life has been the alcoholism they have experienced in their marriage. And then they go to say couples counseling as an example. And the couples counselor has no addiction expertise, has done no addiction training. And you're thinking, how, why would this couple's counselor take this couple on when clearly the biggest thing they have to work through are these addiction issues? And I think what that results in, again, all of this stuff we've talked about, the economic pressure of making a living out of this, um, feeling the self-inflicted pressure to give answers, feeling the client-inflicted pressure to give answers, all of this forces some therapists and psychologists into giving bad advice. And again, this is not an indictment on the field. There are wonderful therapists. And when you find a wonderful therapist, stick with them because they can help so much. But we have heard so many horror stories of, you know, someone who clearly, 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 objectionably, objectionably, objectively. Sorry, that was good. I'll edit that out. Objectively has a drinking problem goes to a couple's counselor and the couple's counselor says, I don't think drinking is your problem. I think it's communication. Well, you you know, again, like we've said so many times, sobriety doesn't fix anything, but it is a prerequisite for a lot of problems related to alcohol. And when that's the advice that the couple gets, it gives the drinking spouse permission to never stop drinking. And I just can't tell you how many times we've heard that and how much that frustrates me. And I just think people, whether they're a licensed professional or not, can get in over their head when they're forced into a box of giving advice. And I say, no, thanks. I don't want to give advice in areas that I don't feel comfortable. I don't want to give advice kind of period. I want to say, this is my experience. This is what I think um, is happening when I compare it to what happened with me. And you can take or leave my experience. Do you get frustrated Sherry, when you, I mean, obviously we we, we try not to second guess healthcare professionals because we're not healthcare professionals, but you see some of what you see is just so blatantly, obviously terrible advice. Does that frustrate you?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, we have heard lots of stories about that. Also, I always wonder how, like, how that is misinterpreted, how it was made by the patients, how, you know, how maybe the... therapist didn't or counselor didn't say it in a way that would say okay so I don't think alcohol is your number one you gotta cut that out but you got all this back stuff that we got to work on you know that we see because you know for you and I I remember my 40th birthday it was a terrible weekend and I said to you we have so many more problems besides just alcohol you have no idea the depth of what we're in so I think that that you know that there you're right it gives that license to go ahead and drink because alcohol is in the problem, but you got to clear that away to get to all the other garbage. So that misinterpretation and misrepresentation, and then making sure that you are able to speak to each of your patients in a language, in a way that they understand. I think that's a lot of pressure there as well.
0: You know, I didn't really think about that, but I'm sure you're right. A lot of it is probably alcohol is not your primary problem and. That's the message delivered and the message received is I can keep drinking because alcohol is not my problem. They, they like leave out the word primary. Yeah, that's a really good point.
1: I mean, it, when, and when we hear those stories and then, and usually it's, you know, from the spouse side of it that said, this is what the counselor said. That's maybe what they heard. And then of course, that's what they're getting reiterated by the drinking partner. Oh, it's not alcohol. It's you because this and that, and that, you know, so that's where I feel like, oh, I bet the counselor and therapist and psychologist didn't say necessarily all, you know, I'm not saying hundred percent all the time, but I've always got that level of like, that's what you heard. That's what you interpreted. That's what you want to believe so that you're going to go there. Yeah. And that's going to be, that's going to be your, allow, you know, your allowance to drink and then blame everything else, but never be able to work on anything else because the drinking is still there and it's not in a positive brain um place to to fix the problems so that i yeah, think good is, point that is probably one of the number one reasons i would pull mom mode and be like too bad you didn't understand what i said well you're grounded and <laughs> you can't do anything and you know that's really like shaking people like i didn't say that that's just what you heard okay so.
0: so basically what we're what we're learning from this discussion is that there's all these um, I don't know, kind of theoretical reasons why I wouldn't want to be a psychologist and therapist. And your reasons are really because you would physically abuse your clients and uh, <laughs> and you would yell at them and kick them out of your office. And so- I would put okay.
1: restrictions on them and ground them. Yeah. It's not even okay. like I'm a big disciplinarian, but I would get really frustrated.
0: Yeah, I get that. Uh, Sherry, our trusted friend- and trusted ally, in fact, in in this work, Jane, who has been on the podcast a a number of times and was one of our, actually, she was one of our very first uh, lived experience guests way back toward the beginning of the podcast. But Jane uh, does a lot of research. That's why I call her a trusted ally. She's not just a friend, but she's constantly sharing things with her that she's learned and, um, she was the first person to introduce me to Brene Brown's grounded theory. And that's what made me realize what we're doing. It's peer support, but it's more than just peer support. We are researchers. The idea be- that, uh, Brene Brown has is that it's okay to develop these grounded theories based on what you're learning in real life examples and not just your own experience, but in the experience of others, because that's how research works. You know, anyway, if you're going to study something, um, you don't just read a book about it. You get out in the field and you study it. And in a way we are out in the field doing research. And that's what I want to do. I don't want to be a clinical, whatever psychologist therapist, because I want to be doing research. I love learning this stuff. I want to find solution solutions, but I don't want to just read solutions in books. You know, I do read, I have resources. I, I learn from others, the, the smart people who have things to say for sure. Brené Brown being one of them, obviously. Um, but from connection with others, that's where it, my juices just really get flowing when somebody makes progress in a way that I never considered. I just absolutely love that. How do you feel about this? Like, does it, Help with the imposter syndrome when you think of yourself as a grounded theory researcher, as opposed to just some um, yokel out there winging it and uh, trying not to mess people up too much.
1: Yeah, I um, I had watched a TED Talk with Brene Brown, um, I think, before Jane mentioned this to us a few years or a couple of years ago, whatever. Um, and it talked about that. And I really liked her data collection and I liked that she kept track of things and she has a team that helps her keep, you know, her research and, and data all cohesive and organized. So then she can like pick out the different pieces that out of like a person's story. Um, so I, I do enjoy that part of it and that doesn't I've kind of said that to myself, you know, over the years, because I want to say, well, I'm just like a story collector. I'm just somebody's sort of historian, in a way, an oral tradition, and then I'll write it down. Because that'll be something, I don't know. I mean, I just think that that's really cool. And I don't know how it turns out. But that's how Brene Brown started by just finding all of these things that were connecting people. But then also the besides just like the things that are similar and connecting people, I like it when we'll find someone who has a very unique story. And like you mentioned, how they worked out something in a different way than what we've kind of seen, you know, so like our unicorn versus a universalism that you've always kind of coined that phrase now, universalism. So then we'll find like a unicorn out there and that's a really unique story in a unique situation. And how they have transformed. So I like having that data to refer to.
0: Yeah, and since we, unlike Brene Brown, we don't have a team of people that are tracking all this for us.
1: You mean my <laughs> notebooks don't I, count?
0: Your notebooks do count. That's my point. There's nobody uh, reading over your notebooks and looking for correlations between you know different things that you've written down. So and my good memory for, bank. For me, yeah, you have a very good memory, but the the universalisms, the that's what really strikes me. Or, or even with just with one individual, if that one individual keeps going back to the same thing over and over again, video call after video call over the course of many months, you know, even my terrible memory, I'm able to collect that data and be like, okay, I think we found the area where you need to do the work because you bring this up on every call. So this is clearly the pain point and, uh, I don't think, you know, that that's not us necessarily giving advice or telling them how to do the work, but it's just helping us identify. You've said this over and over. I think you might want to dig deeper within your therapy appointments. This might be what you want to talk to your therapist about. And the cool thing about peer support and the way we do it is anyone can recognize that anyone on our mm-hmm. video calls who comes with consistency can note, you know, Sherry keeps talking about this thing. Like, great example, you brought up your 40th birthday. Anyone who has listened to the podcast with some consistency has heard us talk about your 40th birthday. I bet we've talked about it two dozen times. And that's a big pain point for you. And so that's how you identify the resentments, right? If you keep bringing it up and keep talking about it, it needs more work. That's not a bad thing often we hear from people like why you know why does my spouse keep bringing this up i've i got sober and i said i was sorry why can't we leave that in the past well that memory that resentment it'll let you know when it's available for being left in the past and until it is it's going to keep coming up
1: i also think that sometimes it doesn't have to be a, necessarily a pain point i feel like as we look back and have analyzed because you Matt likes to talk a lot. So we have rehashed this also because I was resentful about it. But now I look at it like it was, it was a learning experience. Like I realized, oh, I was able to recognize that it was a lot more issues than was alcohol. I also learned to recognize that he doesn't pay attention to what I'm really wanting and he was self-motivated. It's, you know, so for you, it was a learning piece, like how I needed to better understand what my wife needed and wanted for her birthday rather than just what I thought for her weekend away. And then, you know, I just think like looking back, yes, because we've talked about it so much, it was a pain point, but it also doesn't have to be a pain point anymore. Cause we have, we learned from that experience. And I think that when somebody in our group talks, groups talk about something that has happened over and over, and we can point that out. Like, I think this is where you need to work on it. And like, it doesn't have to be you and I, you're right. And I think that happens a lot. And then you can ask, right you can ask a question and it kind of motivates them and I love that connection it's so that is like a family because we want each of our partners in our family to be healthy and so we are trying to help each other and to take an experience And like if we hear a story that happens like my 40th birthday we can also say but then what did you learn from that you know help them draw out what you learned from that oh you learned that they didn't really listen to your needs and you need to speak up to say what you really wanted. And, you know, so going forward how it can help them address the situation that they might encounter in the future. Does that make sense?
0: It makes sense. It's a great point. It's kind of a cozy, you know, you talk about family and how we feel like we're family. It's such a good point. It would be the kind of point that I should have just stopped the recording and ended on. Except like you said, I like to talk. So I'm going to say one more thing. And the the one more thing I'm going to say is about something else I like. In addition to liking to talk, I love to be wrong. And I know that sounds crazy. But when I am right, I'm not learning anything. I love to learn things. And so I love to be wrong. And so the last reason why you and I are not therapists or psychologists is because I don't think it's good for your practice when you advertise to, to people openly that you love to be wrong. I don't think that's Listen, what people are looking for Matt,
1: Matt Salis, the counselor who loves to be wrong, <laughs> come prove me wrong, that can be your slogan.
0: I can see the billboard now. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources.
1: If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery
0: group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org.
1: No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org.
0: For my wife Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.